This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Conversations around fertility and reproductive health are so important to the lives of many women, yet they're often pushed to the sidelines and stigmatized. It means that much too often, women have isolating experiences when it comes to their health and fertility. My guest today is Nicole Liu, a woman who recognized a demand for women to have more control over their reproductive health and set out to create a solution. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the support of Salesforce. Welcome to Season 5. In 2019, Nicole launched Kin Fertility, an online contraception subscription service, an idea she first had after being misdiagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome. In this episode, she shares more about her entrepreneurial journey and talks about why she wanted to empower women with trusted information and better access to healthcare. Nicole Liu, welcome to the Women's Agenda Leadership Lessons. It's such a pleasure to have you on. We've been trying for a while and timetables haven't allowed it. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that today I'm on Kamaragal land of the Eora Nation and I pay my deep respects to Elders past, present and emerging and I thank them for the ongoing custodianship of this land and I understand that you're on Gadigal land. Yeah, that's right. And I would also like to pay my respects and acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. They're the traditional custodians of this land and I would love to pay respects to the Elders both past and present. Thank you. Thank you. So let's begin. So you're the CEO and founder of Kin Fertility. Now there's a lot written about Kin Fertility, but if you can tell us in a nutshell what it is and what it does, and then I'm really interested to explore how you started because like all really interesting ventures, it was unexpected. Um, <laughs> so right. keen to hear from you on that. Yeah, so in a nutshell, um, Kin, we essentially want to empower women to really take control of the decisions that impact their reproductive health and their fertility and their bodies. And that kind of like for us spans the whole reproductive fertility journey from, you know, the moment you have your first period to thinking about contraception, conception, pregnancy and postpartum and really like guiding people through that journey. And I think the big thing for us was that this journey, we like spend most of our lives trying not to get pregnant. And then for a lot of people that sort of like shifts and we potentially think about getting pregnant and it becomes very overwhelming and all consuming. That journey is not always straightforward. And I don't think we're really set up for knowing that all the time. And so like really what Kin's trying to do is trying to be a partner and a guide throughout that whole journey, no matter which part you're in. So we got our start doing contraception to begin with. And we essentially launched Australia's first subscription service, the contraceptive pill, allowing people to access the pill online safely with doctors and basically get that delivered to their door every few months. That did really well. We got over 40,000 members join us in the first year and that allowed us to start thinking about how we can support women in other ways throughout the rest of the fertility journey. And we've really sort of like started to make our dent more in the conception and pregnancy space lately and launching things like personalized checklists to really help people understand all the things that they would otherwise Google and get lost in a rabbit hole in, but make that a lot easier just much more simple and less overwhelming, as well as launching really essential products like prenatal so that they've got everything all in one place and we can just guide them throughout this journey. Yeah, that's great. So I read somewhere that you were diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome and the quote said you were diagnosed and then you decided to build kin fertility. I imagine <laughs> there are a whole bunch of things in the middle there. You started as a blog. 
Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So what had happened was I'd sort of like left, I guess, my corporate career and I had this big urge to, you know, do a health kick. And part of my health kick was doing a fertility test. I was just test everything. And how old were you at the time? I was 24, but someone had just told me about this test and I was just curious. I was like getting my blood done anyway, so I just added it to the gamut. And I came back and the doctor was essentially like, your bloods, they're all fine, except this, oh, hang on, this one thing, you have polycystic ovary syndrome. And I was like, okay, uh, what's that? And he was like, oh, it's going to mean that you will be infertile. Interesting. And he's like, here's this referral, go to the specialist and good luck. Did you change GPs after that appointment? Yeah. I mean, I I just don't have a very, like, I don't have a family GP or like a GP I go back to quite often. Um, But yeah, this was, this was just one that I had around the corner. But yeah, so that happened. And I kind of walked out of that appointment and I was like, holy crap, I'm 24. I was not thinking about having kids. It was very far away from me, but getting it taken away from you and feeling like you couldn't all of a sudden, just not knowing. It was just like a lot of uncertainty. So I'd spent a lot of time on Dr. Google trying to like find information about polycystic ovary syndrome. Everything I found seemed to be quite different to what the doctor had told me. I didn't feel like I showed any of the symptoms based on what the condition was and what the doctor had said. And so I was just very, very confused. Um, Ended up after a few weeks going to the fertility specialist and he was basically like, "Uh, based on your results and your health indications, there's nothing to tell me that you would have polycystic ovary syndrome. But just to be clear, even if you did, it didn't mean that you would be infertile. It just means it's slightly harder, but it doesn't mean you can't have kids, which is kind of what I had taken as the implication of what infertile actually meant. Which is a fair implication. Yeah. And so it was just a very confusing moment for me. And I think I came out of that and I was like, oh, wow, can't believe that happened to me. Can't believe like that doctor did that. Went and told my friends because I was like, oh, this is so weird. And the weirdest thing to hear back from my friends were like, oh, yeah, I had a friend who that happened to as well. Oh, yeah, that happened to me, but for like this other condition that I'd never heard about. And then you realize PCOS and endometriosis, one in 10 women have this. And this was the first time I had heard of it. I hadn't heard of anyone else's stories about being diagnosed, being misdiagnosed, I'm going through it. Women don't talk about these things, right? Yeah. There's so much that we historically haven't spoken about. We just leave it. It's all silent. Even childbirth, I think we don't talk about enough. Yeah, for sure. And I think part of the realisation was that these are friends I hold really, really dear. But when it came to our bodies and what was sort of going on there, it was just that wasn't a conversation we would have. All these journeys happening a lot of the times in isolation. I think the more I sort of read into it and talked to people about it, I realised a lot of people would, for example, go through infertility and not really have a support system to talk to. And I think part of this journey with Kin is how can we normalise this conversation so that we have these conversations more often so we become more aware of the issues that are possible so that we can get help and seek help from both the community and the medical community when we need it. But I think when we hide in the shadows and don't talk about it, that's a lot of the times when you feel really alone in this journey. And I think a lot of the times it's probably where you also need the most support. Yeah, absolutely. In season four, we talked to Christy Chong, who's the founder and CEO of Modi Body. And she said something very similar. She said, at any one point in time, the woman sitting next to you is menstruating. It's 50% of the population and yet we don't speak about it. We don't put images of anything to do with women's bodies in front of us. The images we see are glorified and beautified and airbrushed and we don't see normal bodies. And looking at the Instagram for Kin Fertility, it reminded me a little bit of the Instagram for Modern Body (laughs) because you are trying to normalize the journeys that we go through in our lives as women. Yeah. Oh, that's a total compliment. Thank you. I love what Modi Body is doing. I feel 
like as you're a kid, all you're trying to do is grow up and then get your first period. And everyone's like, okay, now you're a woman, but make sure you keep it really, really quiet and don't tell anyone about it. Hide it. Basically, don't talk about periods. It's shameful. It's not something you should share. I feel like it is something that is so common. It's so normal. It's not gross. It's just something that happens with our bodies. We should just really embrace it. And I think Modi Body does a really, really good job with their messaging in doing that and changing the conversation there. No, absolutely. I remember after having my first child, and she's 23 now, so this is going back a few decades, but I remember somebody saying to me, oh, congratulations, you've had your first child. Now you're part of the Secret Women's Club. And I was like, what's that? And she said, well, we don't talk about childbirth. We don't tell anybody. She said, because nobody would go and have children. And I remember being really shocked about that, thinking, wow, like, why don't we inform women and tell them what it's like before you go into it rather than sweeping it under the rug. So you started this blog. How did you go from a blog to a service where you're providing contraceptives? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So like the blog kind of started because I was like, oh, I wonder whether like anyone else actually cares about this information besides me. And so I partnered with our medical director and a really talented writer. And I was just like, let's download his brain and let's make it digestible. And that was sort of how we got our start. We sort of made a little website, did social media around it. And it kind of just took off on its own quite organically, which I guess to us was just like, oh, cool. People actually care about this stuff. Um, People really spent time on the website. I think one of the things I was amazed at, it was still the era, I guess, of Snapchat and TikTok and all of that. People were spending more than at least like five minutes on the site reading our guides that were like really long guides. People are actually getting utility out of it. They want this information. I wonder what else we could do. And so that sort of turned into what are the actual problems in fertility and reproductive health? We sort of like did a survey of our audience at the time. um, And one thing that really, really stood out and what was really obvious was that the journey and navigating the journey and navigating the questions was just so complicated. And so I think Kin was sort of like, okay, why don't we create a platform that allows people to tackle each part of these new life stages that they go into and make it really easy because it doesn't have to be this hard. Um, And a lot of that was content and things that will guide people through like tools. But I think ultimately we needed to build something that people also wanted to use. And so somehow turned into a healthcare company. And I think like we knew we wanted to do the entire fertility journey and really guide people through because it's the transitions that are hard as well as the individual moments. Um, And so we kind of knew that, but we needed to start somewhere. And we naturally kind of gravitated into where we were in the journey, which was like we were about 24 at the time and we had been on the contraceptive pill for a while. We were like, why do we keep going to the doctors every few weeks? We did the survey and it was just an overwhelming response around like, I don't want to keep doing this. I want to have time back in my day. I want to stop forgetting my pill. And we went from there and just built around that. So let's tell women who are listening how it works for the contraceptive pill. I want the contraceptive pill. I go to the Kin Fertility website. What happens next? What's the journey from there to me refilling a script kind of three months later? Yeah, so you go online and you essentially do a health quiz. Um, and this is essentially 40 or so questions about your medical history and your contraceptive history. And that allows the doctor to basically personalize the right pill for you. And then from there, once the doctor deems that it's safe and that they're happy, then they can prescribe a script online. 
that script gets delivered into one of our pharmacies, like partner pharmacies, which then gets delivered to the patient within like three business days. And so that's the first order. But the sort of like way it works is it's automatic. So you will essentially get your pill a few weeks before you run out so that you're not like doing the last minute rush. We leave a little bit of time for like OzPost to screw up as well. So making sure that they never run out and they always have it on time. And then the membership basically covers unlimited doctor consults as well. So if you have any questions about the pill that you're on, your periods, any side effects that you're getting, you can always come back to the doctor and the doctor can either like give you counseling, um, change the contraceptive pill, take you off the contraceptive pill if needed, whatever is best for you, but just making sure that you get the care that you need all the time. That's great. I wish I'd had a service like that years ago before I had my children. It sounds terrific. So, Nicole, you were at McKinsey's, weren't you, beforehand? I imagine that when you went to uni then and landed in McKinsey, you never, ever thought that you would be doing this right now. What was your original plan for your career? (laughs) Yeah, good question. Well, the funny thing was, like, McKinsey wasn't actually my original plan either. I had gone into, I guess, like a program in uni that was all about finance. So I basically had decided that, you know, I was going to do accounting or some sort of investment banking. I had gone through uni doing all these investment banking internships and I had actually gotten a grad job doing investment banking. That was like it for me. I was like, okay, great. That was the goal. I'm going to like climb this ladder. It makes a lot of money. made my mom happy. And I was like, okay, (laughs) like this is my career. And I got that offer or like knew that was sort of the goal around third year uni. And so in my last year of uni, I was like, okay, well, if this is the rest of my life, I might as well do something different for like one year before I actually have to start this part of my life. So I decided to go into venture capital. Um, I was actually just lucky enough to land an internship because I had always been somewhat curious about technology, but also I loved apps, playing with apps and fiddling around with technology. And I also loved small businesses. Venture capital was a really good use of the skill sets I thought I learned in finance, as well as just my interests. And I just absolutely fell in love. I love the energy that people brought into sort of like their day to day. I love the passion that went into how much people were like striving towards these big goals and starting from basically a blank sheet of paper and like building something amazing. And I really just love being part of that ecosystem, that environment. So I kind of got hooked on that. And I think my plan was always, okay, do a bit of investment banking, but hopefully like make it out on my own one day. But, you know, knowing that that was really, really far away and knowing that I didn't have any ideas I thought was worth spending time on. And also knowing that my parents probably wouldn't approve. Um, So it was really just a pipe dream. And so I kind of was trying to leave venture capital. And we had invested in a guy who had done investment banking and McKinsey. I didn't know him at the time. And he came up to me. He was like, I heard you're leaving and I heard you're doing banking. I think it's the worst decision that you're ever going to make in your life. And I was like, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Nicole. Nothing like being told the truth. (laughs) Um, And he was like, okay, what do you want to do with your life? And I was like, oh. Uh, my day's great thanks um and <laughs> um and I was like oh you know I might want to start a business one day I really love this VC thing um yeah I don't know like I'm really interested in startups and he was like cool how do you think banking will help you with it and I still believe like banking is a really great skill set and finance is a really great skill set and like it's a great career but at the time I couldn't give him an answer like I just didn't know what to say like all the things I had convinced myself around It's going to be a great challenge. I'll build a really great capital base. That didn't come to mind for me. I was like, I actually don't know whether this is the right thing anymore. And he was like, have you heard of this thing called management consulting? I was like, no, what is that? And he was like, oh, you know, it's this thing. You basically learn to build and lead businesses and operate businesses and it would be really good for you. Cool. That sounds pretty good. 
<laughs> and that night I messaged him. I was like, okay, tell me what I need to do to apply. What do I need to be good at? Let's just give it a go. Um, interviewed a couple of weeks later and then started at McKinsey a month later. And so that was sort of an accidental plan, but I knew what skill set I kind of wanted. And like that just seemed really, really perfect at the time. So I took a little bit of a detour into McKinsey. And that was an amazing experience. Really learned, I guess, like how to work with companies, how to do like structured problem solving. The team there was just absolutely incredible and learning from really great people. But I think I always knew I wanted to come out and I think I wanted to work in a startup. And when I felt quite comfortable after a few years at McKinsey, I think I came out wanting to do like product management or working in a startup doing growth marketing or something like that. And I was ready to like restart my whole skill set and just learn those technical skills for a startup and sort of came across this opportunity, I guess, and just decided to give it a crack. Yeah, I love that. I think one of the themes we've seen in the last season is that all these incredible women we're talking to who've got these great careers, most of it wasn't planned. There was a lot of opportunism. You know, they said yes to opportunities they never thought would come their way. And they just took a chance on themselves. They believed in a product and an idea like you did, and they just went for it. And I think that's a great lesson for young women listening today, that actually you don't have to plan your whole life. Yeah, I think a lot of people love to follow their gut. I like to call it follow your energy. You spend so much time at work, probably sometimes more than you spend with your family. And so you kind of want to fall in love with it, not in like a totally obsessive way, but you want to make sure you love it. And if you're not energized at work, that's a lot of your life that you're not going to have heaps of energy for life. And so, yeah, just make sure that you're following that and not just doing everything by the book. I agree with that. I remember working as a young lawyer. I was in a New York law firm. We were working 28-hour days and I remember working out how many hours I spent at work and how many hours I spent at home. And I realised if I'm not enjoying where I'm spending my time at work, actually that's more than half my life. It's a really interesting calculation. There was a talk you gave that was titled On Building a Med Tech Platform with Zero Experience <laughs> in Health or Tech. And I thought that was great. That's so authentic. What are the biggest lessons you've learned since you started Kin Fertility? Oh, yeah, I did not think I was the right person necessarily to build a health tech company. But I think what I realized early on was that I didn't actually have to be. If you can bring in the team to help guide the insights, the decisions you make and the execution that you do, you don't have to be the expert. You just have to make sure you lead the vision and pull everything together. I almost feel like sometimes I'm air traffic controller more than anything else. I don't have like crazy insights. I have an insight almost like based on the patient. And so, yeah, I realized really early on, I was like, okay, let's bring on medical advisor ASAP. Let's bring on doctors and let's bring on people who actually know how to do this. And I'll make sure that I am taking into account what the customer actually wants, what the patient actually wants. And it turns out I'm actually a perfect patient. I don't know anything. And so I was able to take a lot of that naivety and that curiosity and that questioning to be like, why do we actually have to go to the doctors, for example, every three months? What about that can't be digitized? Why not? What friction parts do we need to keep? Because it is part of patient safety, but which parts of the journey that cause friction do we not have to keep? Does it have to be video or, or can it be text? Those were the sort of questions that I think led us to a better patient experience despite not having medical background and the medical experts were the people telling me like, what is all the things that are necessary to make sure it's safe patient experience? Because that's by far the most important thing to us. What is possible and what do they know from their experience? And then almost the questioning helps them take it a little different level, just like thinking about it a little bit differently. I read something yesterday where a lawyer had actually said, that the best way to write is to put yourself in the reader's shoes 
and consider what it would read like from a from the reader's perspective and often the reader in that case is not a lawyer and I think it sounds like you've done exactly that you put yourself in the patient's perspective and tried to create the best experience from their perspective not from the doctor's perspective not from the regulations perspective not from the point of selling but actually from a patient perspective and that's probably one of the reasons it's so successful because people like that experience. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the early days was how can we just build something that we want to use? And then it sort of like evolved from there. Yeah, great. One of the things that we've been talking about in season four, and I'm keen to continue exploring is resilience. So when you're starting a new business, I imagine there were lots of times where you just buried your head in your hands and thought, oh, is this going to work? What am I going to do? How did you come back from those times? Like, did you have people around you? What was it that you drew on in yourself to come back? Oh, it's such an interesting question. So like Kian actually launched in February, right before the pandemic. So March was sort of like when the pandemic hit Australia. We launched right before then and it went crazy after that. Like everyone was sort of turning to telehealth. And all of a sudden we went from just launching into, okay, we've got to figure out how to scale this. And we were like, operating out of a mom and pop shop and this is like contraception so you don't have the right to screw it up you don't get to be like hey OzPost is going to delay your order by two weeks you've got to go figure it out that was a really crazy sort of like initiation by fire that in itself was hard and I think I had to rely a lot on the team uh, just emotional support I think there was also an element of you have to get through this I didn't have time to think about it I didn't have time to stop and think about what was happening and like whether I was okay yet But when I did have sort of like time to reflect, I think I went back and I was like, oh, I got through that. I can probably get through anything else. And I think I keep coming back to that time and I'm like, actually, it's going to be okay because we got through that. And these instincts that you use through there, you know, you can take forward as well. But yeah, my investors um, very early on, I don't think they realized what they took on when I brought them on. They're basically my psychologists, like my mental health therapy. Like I go to them with everything. I'm very emotional about it. But you have to have that that sort of transparency and that communication and like talk to someone who's actually been through it or like knows what you're going through because they can actually talk you through it. And I think half the time talking about it is half the battle and knowing what you're going through and being transparent with it and having someone to be like, hey, we get it. That's not unusual. You're not alone. This isn't you doing a bad job. This is just a bad situation. But you know what? We're going to get through it together. Um, And I think a lot of the times you just want to hear that validation. That sounds like a really open and authentic way to be in business. Is that how you lead your team as well, just with that transparency? I think I take this a lot to all my jobs. I don't know how to not be. It's really exhausting not being yourself for like however many hours of a day that you work. And so I like, I don't know how to not bring myself to be me like I don't know how to stop myself from being emotional I think it is really exhausting to try and do that and so I, I've never really tried probably out of what laziness um, not strong professionalism but I think I've always really valued building really strong relationships with everyone I meet whether that's going to be my friend my colleague my investor and I think that's probably really important in wanting to have fun at work and being happy and motivated at work. You want to be around people who care about you as a person, not just like you as a business um, or you as a leader or you as a colleague. I want to create these connections because that ultimately makes life richer. And I think that transparency, vulnerability, the emotional response, whether it's high or low, that ultimately helps like build that connection. Yeah. And I think, you know, ultimately everybody just wants to bring their authentic self to work. Yeah. Nobody wants to I can't nobody wants to be 
one person at work and a different person with your friends and a different person with your family, it is so much easier to yeah. just be yourself all the time and to be that open and transparent person. But I think it's about creating environments where that's cherished and people like that can flourish as opposed to unconsciously telling people, actually, we don't want you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think like when you open up the conversation, it almost gives people permission to do it as well. I'm pretty open with that. Yeah, great. You've mentioned your family a few times. So for people who can't see you, um, <laughs> you, um, like me, come from an Asian background. You've talked about disappointing your family. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that pressure as you were growing up and how they're now reacting to this incredible business that you've built. <laughs> yeah, so I grew up, um, my, my family is like a first-generation um, immigrant family. So they came to Australia, they don't know much English. And so in order to sort of like make a living, they've always had to start small businesses, whether it's like working in a pizza shop or like, um, you know, building their own curtain installation shop, like they've probably started like five businesses during my childhood. So I kind of grew up around that and I was like, oh, that's really cool. You know, like always getting my hands dirty, always feeling I was doing something and like bringing something to life. But obviously they didn't like it. That was a means to an end. That was like survival mechanism for them. It wasn't what they wanted for me. They wanted me to have a stable career. They wanted me to find, you know, a you know, stable relationship and just have stable everything. Everything needed to be like up and to the right. And so, yeah, they, they worked really hard to make sure I got, like, a good education, um, made sure I, like, could set myself up to, like, do well in interviews. They would, like, always sort of, like, support me that way and that was, like, incredible. And I think because of that, I almost wanted to work harder for them and I wanted to make sure that they weren't working this hard for nothing. Um, and so a lot of the pressure was almost, like, me putting it on myself because I didn't want to let down my parents because they, I could see that they would never take a day off. Um, they would work so hard they would give so much and have so little and I didn't want to disappoint them from that perspective I kind of went down their route I guess to go into finance to go into consulting which was somewhat like a deviation from what they planned for me and I think when I told them I was going to leave there was definitely a sense of what the hell are you doing they were very worried um, they were I wouldn't say disappointed I think they were just like why can't you just <laughs> keep going you're on a path this path is very clear we can see where this is going to take you why don't you just stay the course it's so stable it doesn't make sense to leave and they didn't really know what I was going to do like I didn't even know what I was going to do I just kind of left but I I've had these really open transparent conversations with them before where I really value being happy and I really value being yeah, I, I don't know how else to describe it. I just really value being happy and finding joy in my life and waking up and wanting to go to work or wanting to do the thing that I'm going to do that day. And I think that somewhat was a not foreign concept for them, but like they've always worked to survive or work to make sure they had enough to live. Whereas like we have the right now because they've given me the opportunity to have the right to thrive and like to have the right to an opportunity to find something that makes me happy. And I think that was really hard for them to grasp. But after a couple of conversations, they were like, Nicole, we know you, like you're just going to do what you're going to do. Um, we're not going to stop you, but just know that you, you you have this path and like you can come back to it. And I was like, okay, cool. Thanks. That's all I needed. I'm going to, I'm going to head off. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I think there was a big fear at the beginning, but those conversations really helped. And I think ultimately every mom and dad just wants to see you happy and they work so hard to get to this point so really just try and take advantage of it but um yeah they're always going to be in a different mindset 
I think that story will resonate with so many different people. <laughs> um, in season four, we talked about women's reproductive rights quite a bit. We had Wendy McCarthy, who was one of the champions of women's reproductive rights in Australia. We had Moddy Body. Uh, we're talking to you. At the same time, we've seen in the last few weeks an erosion of a woman's right to choose in the United States in Texas with the changing of the laws there in the journey to build kin fertility. Have you come up against any criticism or any negative views about what you're doing? Have you seen that sentiment or an undercurrent of that sentiment here? Uh, I think like to be honest, the biggest sentiment that probably comes across um, is more around like telehealth in general. Um, like especially at the beginning, I think people were sort of hesitant to to support telehealth as a thing and like they didn't really believe it was necessarily safe. Um, I think COVID sort of like let that pass and like it was very obvious that if push comes to shove, it definitely can be safe and like you can build things to make sure that it's safe and like people are doing that. COVID um, cured us of so many <laughs> preconceived notions, didn't uh, it? Yeah, I think it really progressed, um, even just telehealth itself, like progressed telehealth by 10 years in the span of one year, which was really, really good and I think um, definitely necessary. Sounds like you haven't had huge criticism. No, not so much. Yeah, which um, not is so great. much. Not so much on the like reproductive health side. Yeah, which is fantastic. One of the themes we're talking about is how to lead for the next decade. And we've had people talk about, you know, gender neutral leave, authentic leadership, different working from home models and hybrid working. You're touching on all of those. But if you could wave a magic wand and get everybody to do one thing in the way they work for the next decade, do you have anything that you would focus on that you'd want people to focus on? I actually think like the biggest thing for me, and I think like there has been a really big push in the last few decades. Um, but I would just love to see like more diversity at the tables that make the decisions. There has been a massive push. I'd love to see more of it. The way I always think about it is, you know, women, different um, minorities, different um, nationalities, everyone has like different experiences. If you don't bring those perspectives and those thoughts to the table when you're making these decisions for your customers who are ultimately going to be like all sorts of different people as well, you're not solving and making decisions based on like what your customers actually want. A really prime example, I guess, in my industry, I always think about it is the pregnancy test or any prenatal supplement. I am constantly dumbfounded that there are like pregnant women or babies on those products. Anyone who has ever gone for a pregnancy test, either when they're trying to conceive um, or when they're freaking out that they might be pregnant, like you do not want to see a baby. You do not want to see a pregnant woman on there. And it just makes me think that I don't think that when people were making those like simple design decisions like that, I don't think there was a woman at the table who has gone through part of their fertility journey that that involves or just a woman on the table making those decisions. And I think that's so important. You need to keep placing people into places where they actually have a voice and then empower them to actually use that voice. I don't want it to be tokenistic. I would love to just see people really push for diversity at the table and then like really open up that space for people to make their mark and like actually have a voice there. It's really interesting, isn't it? I think it's one of the reasons why there hasn't been a huge amount of innovation in women's health in the last few decades because we haven't had women sitting around the table making those decisions. Yeah, and I think when there's also so little conversations around fertility and reproductive health are so stigmatised, I think when we don't talk about it, society at large doesn't recognise it as a big problem. 
And all of a sudden, like investors at large also don't recognize it as, as a big problem. And I think the more we talk about it, the more innovation, research, um, actual solutions get built to these problems that we so clearly feel. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for your authenticity and openness. And uh, I think your conversations can really resonate with people. Thank you. No, I, I had a lot of fun. Nicole Liu is full of energy and drive. It's so easy to understand why her business is such a success, given her strong sense of empathy. She has a strong desire to put herself in her customer's shoes, to think of the perspectives of those around her and not let the lack of a plan stop her. Her ability to pivot, to look at different options and to change paths quickly are lessons that we can all take on board. She also was clear that we don't have to know everything. We just need to surround ourselves with great people and create an environment where they can bring their authentic selves to work every day. Thank you for joining us for the beginning of Season 5 of the Leadership Lessons Podcast. This episode was produced by Alison Ho and made possible through the support of Salesforce. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. I'm looking forward to another season with you. See you next week. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.